Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. We've done well over 600 of them now. And if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on the website and there's a page of about alternatives to PayPal. My guest today is Pravrajiga Divyananda Pranamataji. She is a monastic member of Sri Saradamat, an institution in the lineage of Sri Ramakrishna, Sri Sarada Devi, and Swami Vivekananda. Same lineage as uh, Swami Sarvapriyananda, whom I've interviewed. She is currently editor of the English Journal of Samvit, published from New Delhi. She was principal of Nevedita Vidya Mandir School from 2014 to 2019. She has authored two books, Science of Happiness, which I read in the last week or two, and Self-Discovery. In addition to studying the Ramakrishna Vivekananda literature, she has extensively studied the Yoga Vedanta texts based on these twin philosophies, which include Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, Raja Yoga, the Upanishads, and auxiliary scriptures of Vedanta, along with their commentaries. She has lectured all over India since 2010 in various universities, engineering and medical colleges and spiritual centers. She offers courses on Yoga Vedanta every semester at the Indian Institute of Technology in New Delhi. She has also traveled to teach and lecture in South Africa, Ireland, Great Britain, the United Arab Emirates, and Canada, and extensively in the U.S. And I heard you came to Iowa. Where was I when you did that? I would have gone. She also has trained in the conventional sciences, and some of her talks have explored the interface between subjective and objective sciences. We were going to do this interview last week, but we had to reschedule, and I'm glad we did because it gave me an extra week to listen to her talks. I've just been listening to many, many hours of them, and I find I just resonate with this type of knowledge and this tradition also, and it's been really uplifting and blissful, actually, to... um, to listen to these beautiful talks and to also listen to an audio recording of her whole book on happiness. Obviously, an interview like this is just kind of a snapshot, but I will provide links to various video sources of her uh, YouTube channel with over 50 hours worth of, of talks. And if you find that what we cover today resonates with you, I encourage you to listen to more of them. So, thanks so much, Mataji, for joining me here. It's, um, I've really been looking forward to this. Thank you, Rick. Thank you so much for having me here. And you're way up in the Himalayas someplace, which means it's not 115 degrees Fahrenheit where you are, as it is in much of India <laughs> right, right now. That's probably why you're there. You know, I've been doing this for 12, 13 years now. And when I first started, I encountered what is called Neo-Advaita. And I hadn't been too familiar with it, but I kept running into people and and then interviewing some people who might be described as Neo-Advaita teachers or exponents. And I just had a visceral discomfort with that approach as compared to what I feel you represent, which is a much more traditional approach to knowledge and deep experience. 
So I just want to start by emphasizing that, in my opinion at least, and we'll get yours, there's a value to these ancient traditions. Maybe sometimes they get calcified or ossified and need a little refreshing, but people have been at this for thousands of years and they've learned a thing or two along the way. There are people who say, oh, the, the guru thing is over and oh, we don't need all these old crusty traditions. But I think it's a shame if they're just swept aside like that, because there's really a great deal of wisdom to be found in them. So let's take that as a starting point. Yeah, you're right. It's so good to know that you feel so intensely about these traditions and uh, the methods they have followed to come at the realization they speak of. In fact, today, very serious sadhaks, uh, even today you will find them sort of uh, trying to follow in the footsteps of those who have actually realized, because the whole point is, you know, you must have the experience in yourself. And for that, you require to follow a method in a particular ambience. And that can never be discounted. You can't compromise on that. And that's the whole point about sadhana. So I think those who are very particular about getting the spiritual experience will definitely stick to the method. Some of the things the, the Neo-Advaitans say are things that are, <laughs> that are true on some level, but they're not actually that practical for the average person. For instance, they'll say, you're already enlightened, or there is no person, so why should you do anything? Because you're just going to reinforce the sense of a doer if you do something for this enlightenment thing, which you already are and things like that. And so on some level, I mean, if we read Mandukya Upanishad or something, yeah, that's the way they talk, but it's not a practical approach for the average person. And I know that you said in one of your talks that the vast majority of people really need to start with karma yoga and go through a great degree of refinement and purification yeah. <laughs> before knowledge alone can be the um, springboard to realization. Right. Yeah, it's essentially about transformation of consciousness. And until that has occurred, I think just one single thought or thought process even, it cannot lead you to the actual thing. It's a matter of transformation of consciousness. And in India, when we use the word consciousness, it means something more than a kind of thought or emotion or an act of will, intention. It, it means something more than that. It means it's a complete transformation of your awareness. That awareness which was invested in a thought process, in a mind, in a body consciousness, that has been transcended. Without this happening in the first person, as I always say, without it happening in yourself, it's very difficult to actually digest a philosophy like Advaita. Yeah. I was going to have you do a little chant at the beginning that might traditionally be done at the beginning of something like this, and I forgot. I want to, want to do one now? Yes, sure. I can yeah. do it, yeah. Om Asatoma Sadgamaya Tamasoma Jyotir Gamaya Mrityorma Amritam Gamaya Om Shanti 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 Oh, thank you so much for suggesting this. <laughs> I, I, I just I, love these chants. I'm sorry that I forgot to do it in the beginning. What does That's that mean? Well, from Asat... You lead me to Sat, from the unreal, lead me to the real. Tamasoma Jyotir Gamaya is lead me from darkness to light. And Mrityorma Amritam Gamaya is lead me from this mortality to immortality. Nice. 
so I was just about to ask you about Shravana, Manana, and Nididhyasana, because it relates to what we were just saying, I think. So start explaining what those mean, and we'll discuss them a little bit. These are the three standard techniques uh, we use in Vedant. And um, like Shravan, obviously, to know something about the subject matter is very much required initially. So Shravana is like an initial hearing of something. Like right now, people are listening to our talk, and that's a kind of a Shravana. Yes. And actually, uh, Shravana can be very powerful because you are generating the mental vrittis regarding the subject matter. And vrittis are? Are conscious modifications of your thought process. Impressions. Well, they become impressions, but okay. initially they are like a modification of your mind. Vritti comes from vrit dhatu, which is a, a world of thought, as it were. So it's a kind of modification of the mind. When you repeat it, it becomes a sanskar, an impression. Okay, good. Yeah, so everything then that we perceive is a vritti, you could say. If we're walking down the street, yeah, yeah. we see a telephone pole, we see a dog, we see a car. Yeah, yeah. Those are all little vrittis. Yeah. From the subjective standpoint, it's a vritti, yeah. And then obviously every vritti, especially those we repeat over and over and over again, makes an impression. Right. Okay. So good. it's an easy way to uh, create sanskars for the Vedantic life. <laughs> Shravan. I used to have the impression that sanskara had a negative connotation, like it was a, a stress or no, no, not uh, you know, conditioning. But obviously, especially I learned this listening to you, that it's as positive as it is negative. It depends on what they are. Yeah, exactly. There are many types of sanskars. And depending on the quality of your conscious thought process, they are generated. So uh, they can be positive and negative. Right. And so we want to create positive ones, obviously, to counterbalance and displace the negative ones. Right, right. Good. And as with any kind of conditioning, the more impressions of a certain kind we have, the more inclined we are to do a certain thing. That's right. That's right. And so we want our inclinations to be more and more positive and healthy and constructive. So therefore, we keep creating positive impressions. Yeah, yeah. Actually, sanskars in the spiritual traditions, especially here, they are looked upon as the building blocks of character and behavior. So they are the most important things about your spiritual life, the impressions you create as a result of your conscious thought and action. Those building blocks actually manifest as behavioral patterns. So even today's behavioral psychology is not insisting on this. But this is uh, so much a fact that your sort of the building blocks are already within you based upon what you have thought in the past. And accordingly, you act in any particular situation, or you react or uh, whatever manifestation of behavior is there. So it's all dependent on the sanskar. Yeah, I used to have a teacher who used to often say that to which we give our attention grows stronger in our lives. Right. Yeah. Um, So obviously, let's say parents raising a child, they are trying to instill positive samskaras or impressions in that child because that builds the child's character. Right, right. So the whole key is the conscious thought pattern. You know, conscious thought becomes, when repeated, it becomes samskar. We ought to pay attention to that, what we are doing with a conscious mind. Good. This might seem obvious, but a lot of times people who are interested in spirituality or show an interest in it, 
I'm guilty of this myself, I suppose, because I like to watch the news and see what's going on in the world. And that's usually not very positive. But very often people indulge in things that have no redeeming value and somehow feel they can get away with it. But these things have consequences. Yeah, yeah. It's not like on the laptop, you want to erase something, you just have to touch a particular button, but it's not so with your mind. Whatever gets imprinted there, it takes time to erase that. And that's why many people are actually frightened of their memories. Yeah, They have uh, generated uh, sanskars which are very strong and negative. And so they are scared of their memories because sanskars again produce memories. That's why the whole thing, the whole cycle, and this is very well described in the commentaries on the Patanjali Yoga Sutras. This entire cycle can be controlled if you take charge of your conscious thought process. You allow only positive, good thought. You, that's why the importance of Shravan and Manan. You see, you encourage the right form of thinking, it will become your sanskar. It will generate your memories further on. And the cycle gets repeated. So what's the difference between Shravana and Manan? Manan is when you think deeply about what you have heard. When you have generated a certain level of vritti uh, jnan through Shravan, uh, the knowledge born of, you see, the modifications generated by hearing the Vedantic scripture, then you dwell upon that. You dwell upon that for a long time. It's the best thing. The next best thing to realization will be to dwell upon the experience of the realized sage. Okay. Isn't it? Yeah. So for instance, over the last couple of weeks, I've probably listened to 20 hours of your talks. And I don't know if there was anything that I heard that I had never heard before, but my feeling was I could hear this stuff every day for the rest of my life and it would still <laughs> have a positive influence. I mean, because a lot of it tends to go in one ear and out the other, and you just want to have it get more and more deeply ingrained. So it becomes second nature. Right, right. That's why the importance of manan, thinking continuously about what we have heard. Yeah, especially about see the news, you don't want to think continuously about what you have heard on the news channel, isn't it? But a scripture, you require to hear it again and again and dwell upon it. So right. that you generate enough sanskars to support your practice further. That is the nididhyas and the third step. Yeah. Conforming the mental mode to reality. That will only come when you have generated enough sanskars to support the practice and get the experience through meditation. Yeah. And you know, you could take a book like the Bhagavad Gita or something and read it throughout your life. But it, it's always a new book because there's right. always a deeper level of understanding as you go along. That's right. Even the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna is like that. Every yeah. time you feel it's something new. Okay, and then there's Nididhyasana. Yeah, that is about meditation. Although we may love to get the direct insight into the state of pure consciousness, whatever the scriptures are speaking of, you have to learn to conform the mental mode to that reality before you can actually plunge into that experience. I use the word experience. There are people who use the word insight or breakthrough or whatever you call it. Before you get it, your mind should have completely absorbed that experience or have a very, very clear idea of that experience within yourself. And you love to dwell on it. If this sanskar is not there, tell me how on earth will you actually remain in that very rarefied state of awareness? That is why meditation is so very important. It is conforming the mental mode, uh, the nature of your mind to the nature of reality. 
This will only come through practice. Right. So, for instance, you could read books about pure consciousness. You could read Nisargadatta Maharaj. You could read Ramana right. Maharshi and so on. But uh, that's like, well, it's, it's like standing outside a restaurant, reading the menu on the door and <laughs> think, right. oh, that sounds very delicious. But you could starve to death doing that. You have to go in and eat. You have to sit right. and meditate to experience it. Yeah. Yeah, so beautifully put. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and actually, this would be a good point to um, mention the second and third verses of uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. That kind of relates directly to what we're talking about when we say me- experience and the mechanics of how that experience is achieved. That's right. Because uh, after the second sutra of the Yoga Sutras, there he introduces to us the definition of yoga. Yoga is chittavritti nirodh. So why the cessation of the thought process is important? Because if you don't do that, tada drashtu swarupi avasthanam, so that your witnessing awareness comes to the forefront, your identification with the thought process goes to the background. You sort of undermine that by disconnecting from thought itself so that awareness comes into full bloom. That's the whole point. Because in yoga psychology, you know, how do they exactly see awareness? It is the undercurrent of your thought process. It is what enlivens thought. So you have to put down thought in order to step into awareness. Otherwise, what will happen? Vritti sarupyam itaratra, which means otherwise you will simply keep getting identified with the thought process again and again and get carried away by it, which is what happens during meditation. Please see. During meditation, maybe you attain a certain amount of deep calmness or stillness but then something else comes into your mind and it just carries you away for momentarily. Then again, you come back. So this is a, the natural process unless the witnessing awareness has come to the forefront. That is why the standard technique in yoga is you put down the thought process. That is yoga, essentially. But to what effect? So that you become more aware from within. Not that you go into sleep or anything like that. And the analogy often used is that of a movie theater where the movie is playing on the screen. You can't see the screen because the movie overshadows it. But if you could take the movie image and make it fainter and fainter and fainter and fainter, then as you did so, the screen would become more and more and more obvious until eventually right, right. no movie projecting on it and screen exactly. is right there. Exactly. In actual experience, it translates as becoming deeply aware or conscious, so conscious that you you don't feel like you are the awareness or anything like that. You just become intensely aware. So that is a tremendous experience, actually, <laughs> yeah. to achieve that. And there's still something dualistic in saying you become intensely aware. And obviously, what we're talking about here is a state at which one actually transcends dualism. Yes, exactly. Because in that state, if when you are fully aware, there is no question of See, you are unidentified with any thought process. So there is no identification with a body or a world of objects. So there's no duality, basically. The state of intense awareness guarantees this. But for that, you must have the sufficient clarity of mind to maintain that for a long time. Because it is a rarefied state from the normal standpoint. But it makes everything very clear. Without Nididhyasana, in fact, you can't understand Vedant. (laughs) And maintaining it for a long time. That's something which grows through practice. Yes, yes, yes. It should not be just a few prolonged seconds. It should be the real samadhi-like state. Right. That is the most important thing. 
and the nervous system has to be cultured over time, the mind and nervous yeah, system. Yeah, that's why without the sanskar uh, backup, you actually can't do it. Yeah. Okay. Here's a question that I wrote out in, in a little bit of detail. The Gita says that there's nothing so purifying as knowledge. And that might be interpreted yeah. to mean that you can just study, read, and discuss various scriptures and thereby be purified and enlightened. Some people dismiss the importance of practice. We're, we're rehashing a little bit here. They dismiss the importance of practice and suggest that it reinforces the sense of an ego or a practicer. But you and others emphasize practice to gain clarity and purity. But when you're practicing, meditating, you're not gaining knowledge in an intellectual or informational sense. You're just allowing the mind to settle down to a quiet state. And yet when it totally settles down, you might say you've arrived at a state of pure knowledge or pure realization, that to which intellectual understanding points. So that's more of a statement than a question, but it summarizes what we just said. And perhaps you could elaborate on it a little bit more. Yeah, we use the word knowledge because we don't have a better word. In Sanskrit, we have other words like samvit, pragna. What these mean to say is, you see, here knowledge is more to do with awareness than any kind of an objective encounter with anything. It is not knowing something. In the final analysis, you can only be the thing. You cannot know it. So it's not a process of knowledge. But we don't have another word in English. So we keep using the word knowledge. It's if like we were say, having this uh, conversation in Sanskrit, we would have used quite different words, you know, because you cannot know the self. You can only become the self because it's your own awareness that you're investigating into. You can only be it. That's why Vivekananda used the words, uh, I think, being and becoming. Yeah, it's like uh, if you could stand apart from the self and know it, like who is knowing what? Exactly. It's, it's like exactly. Eckhart Tolle said on uh, the just before he had his awakening, he was very depressed and he said, I can't live with myself anymore. And then he said, wait a minute, are there two of me? <laughs> exactly. They say that the Inuits or the Eskimos have about 30 different names for snow because they're so familiar with snow. The Vedic tradition has a lot of different names for consciousness right, and knowledge right. and all that. Yeah, we actually, the word pragna, chaitanya, these are all very significant because we know here the knowledge is to do with intensified awareness. Uh, you can say a totally, see, the level of your awareness is dependent on the density of your mind. If right. the mind is very clear, very sattvic, then it will reflect more of what we are calling the sakshi, the pure consciousness. So your reflected awareness will be very intense. So that is a huge clue to getting to the state of your original being. Unless you manufacture that state, you see, that's why Nididhyasana, unless you manufacture that state, you won't get an inkling of what you're searching for and what its nature is. Well, this is, a, you know, there are two schools of Vedanta. <laughs> One actually insists on Shravan as the direct means to realization and the other insists on Nididhyasana. I belong to the second school. That's the actually Bhamati school. And obviously, you include Shravana. You include the hearing yeah, yeah. Of truth. Yes, but, that's the first Just step, part of the yeah. package. Yeah. I was listening to your discourses on the Isha Upanishad. There's a verse that I've always wondered about that you discussed, and this relates to what we're just talking about. Into blinding darkness goes he who worships avidya, ignorance. Into even greater darkness goes he who worships vidya, knowledge. And, um, <laughs> right. I've always wondered about that verse. It sounds, what are they talking about? 
this is pretty obvious this is the characteristic uh, upanishadic way of putting it that since it is not an objective knowledge even the spoken word the written word anything in the third person will never give you an inkling of what it is and that is why this vidya will lead you into greater uh, darkness that's why they are saying that because it's not an objective knowledge at all the very nature of that knowledge and the method changes when it comes to self knowledge meditation is the most direct way you can go into it and for those who are adepts at meditation real yogis maybe just the mahavakya suffices for them it's just like a spark they get it immediately explain uh, mahavakya mahavakya is are uh, those great statements or sentences in the upanishads which give you the direct relationship between the atman and brahman the self and the cosmic reality of existence they all mean the same actually there are four mahavakyas and we were just recently doing the mandukya upanishad it has the mahavakya ayam atma brahma which means this atman itself is brahman chandogya upanishad has tattvamasi you are verily that brahman see they all mean the same thing and brihadaranyaka has aham brahmasmi which is i am brahman and aitreya upanishad has pragnanam brahma which is consciousness is brahman so these four statements are directly pointing in fact they alone suffice to a very developed mind they are just great pointers towards the state of pure being your own real nature so in other words if the mind is pure enough ripe enough one can just hear a phrase like that and that can yes that yes, can be can the, drive you in straight yeah whereas someone else could hear it for years on end and it just wouldn't have much effect that's the point i'm trying to make the mind has to be cultivated by the meditation process that is why i speak more about yoga many times than about vedant because you must perfect the methodology then the end will come by itself another angle on that isha upanishad verse he who worships knowledge goes into even greater darkness i wonder if it might be something i've encountered many times which is actually described by an old tibetan proverb don't mistake understanding for realization and don't That's mistake right. realization for liberation but yet a lot of times people read enough books or go to enough talks that's and they right. think i got it and that's, that's right. worse than thinking you don't have it yeah, because yeah. you don't and yet you think you do and therefore you're not going to do the necessary things to actually get yeah, it yeah. yeah you're right in fact in the upanishads you have this atma sa vigneya sadneya they are not telling you they are telling vigneya which means you have to realize it it's about being and becoming and not knowing it as an you know an object just for want of words we are constantly using the word object we using the word knowledge but it's about being and becoming that's how you can describe it and i can tell you this that people who have done a lot of meditation they will understand the significance of this yogic statement yogo yogena gnatavyo yogo yoga pravartate which means you can know yoga only through yoga and by yoga i mean meditation not the exercises and all that you can know it only through yoga and you can proceed in yoga only through yoga and not in any other way because the intelligence that develops as a result of stilling thought is something very different from the intelligence you get by collecting information through a thought process which can actually yeah, stir which is thought actually up delusive 
I think you have read a lot of Ramana literature. A fair amount. Yeah, yeah. fair amount. I think you remember that incident where there was this person uh, sitting at the feet of Ramana and he said, Bhagwan, I don't want to become sugar. I want to eat sugar. And then immediately, you know, Maharshi looked into his eyes and said, do you think awareness is insentient like sugar that you have to remain apart from it to enjoy it? This is a stupendous point because you see that he's Bhagwan. He has realized that state. He is in that state. It's not a separate. You have to keep it separate from you to enjoy it. <laughs> the very nature of pure awareness is it is synonymous with happiness. You will not realize it until you enter the state. I have some questions about that. I've been thinking about that lately. I've been studying the Kata Upanishad with Swami Sarvapriyananda, and we were doing one verse where um, it says, or one mantra where it says, the discriminating man should merge the organ of speech into the mind. He should merge that mm-hmm. mind into the intelligent self. He should merge the intelligent self into the great soul. He should merge the great soul into the peaceful self. Swami Sarva Priyananda talked about this as a, a recognition that they are already merged, the way New York City is merged into New York State, which is merged into the United States, which is merged into North America, etc. So he's saying one recognizes that they're already merged, but then who or what is doing the recognizing? And does that recognizer have to remain ever so slightly unmerged or separate to some degree in order to be observing these mergings? From the final perspective, yes, they are merged. But just now we are recognizing them as separate. That's why we are saying speech and mind and self. We are using different terms. So from the beginner's standpoint, I would put it like this, that what's the meaning of merging speech in mind? See, if you just arrest speech, you become mentally very active, isn't it? This is our uh, natural experience. So... If you arrest the thought process, you become deeply aware. So this is the meaning of merge speech into mind and mind into self. What they're asking us to do is, see, these are all faculties given for the expression of that inner consciousness. Now, your goal is not the expression, but the knowledge of the self itself. So what will you do? So merge speech into mind, which means arrest still your different faculties of expression your mind will become very active. Then just suppress that intelligence also. And you will become deeply aware. Because you see, this is what happens in the meditation process. When you actually put down thought in a very conscious state of mind, you become intensely aware. Aware of the absence of thought in your mind. Now this state is to be extended, captured and extended. It will resolve into a very clarified state of You can say pure awareness. It is still in the mind. It's reflected awareness, but it will give you an inkling of what you are searching for. The state of pure being, the Atman. So you have to arrest this instrumentation in order to allow that to happen. Otherwise, you know, you'll be carried away by your thoughts, by your sense perceptions. They are all meant to turn us outward and they are meant for our survival. Okay. But once that is taken care of, we must get this It's an inner imperative that you want to turn your senses and mind inward. Because you know the sheer limitation of sense experience and mind-born experience. That's why I wrote that signs of happiness, you see. We are all searching for the same thing. Only thing is we have not explored this inner realm 
sufficiently and we have not brought the terminology into everyday thinking and speaking we haven't done that it's uh, somewhere in the scriptures and uh, esoteric and all that and only a few people have access to it it should not be like that vivekananda had wanted that advaita become poetic come into everyday life all this you must have read in his works so why he wanted that was this should be knowledge available to anyone who is prepared for it who's wanting it absolutely i don't know about india but here in the united states there's a very high rate of depression and everybody's taking medications for it there's a very high rate of suicide especially among younger people and it's tragic especially considering that everyone contains deep within a, a ocean of happiness yet there's <laughs> all this unhappiness you know resulting in such tragic behaviors well i always tell my students in these iits and all that that um, you just keep this equation in your mind that happiness is an exponential function of awareness if your mind is not deeply aware no object will keep you happy for a long time because the mind will fill up with boredom and then worries and anxieties and all sorts of things if it is not deeply aware don't think collection of information and a variegated thought process is all that uh, constitutes intelligence in fact it compromises your real intelligence because the more you allow the mind to overthink and purely just objective thinking the more you discount awareness you compromise on awareness because your thought as yoga sees it it is nothing but a huge investiture of your vital energy so you are deeply engaged now in a thought process which is outward bound you will lose on awareness and the mind which is not deeply aware will not know happiness right and the reason for that obviously is well maybe not obviously is that happiness or bliss is an intrinsic quality of consciousness or awareness such as exactly. ananda you know existence consciousness bliss what the vedic scriptures say is that awareness is not only your innermost nature but it's also the fundamental reality of the universe and bliss or, right. or happiness is is somehow part of its makeup that's part of right its- yeah why would that be let's say 10 minutes after the big bang when there were no <laughs> um, life forms of any sort in the universe even then would you say that happiness was an essential constituent or, or quality of brahman and it just took a few billion years for there to be beings who could enjoy that as a living reality but still it was there from the start or from for all times you must understand this thing in the first person again <laughs> just check on your own awareness and see is it apart from existence and happiness it cannot be your own awareness these are synonyms for that awareness only what we are calling pure existence and happiness they are different definitions different words for awareness only that is why brahman is always called sachidananda but you must realize it as your awareness in your being because you know if i understand brahman as sachidananda what does it matter to me you must experience it as i am that brahman in my awareness actually speaking there is nothing called my awareness because awareness is not mine i am awareness so through meditation when you can capture when you become deeply aware this is all i can say about it that when you become intensely aware which means your mind is bereft of thought 
but intensely aware awareness floods the mind you will understand that that means happiness and every other form of op- happiness which was object based was a kind of synthetic joy which you know the mind had to be engaged with something and somehow get a little joy or gladness and that is why you were doing that kind of an engagement but this is the original joy of pure being but you can know it only if your awareness gets clarified to that extent and not by any other means even the upanishad i am telling you or a great rishi or okay so ami vivekananda sitting in front of you or raman maharshi sitting in front of you but it must happen in you your awareness should touch pure being just now when we are talking of awareness we are talking of the reflected shadow of pure being in the mind and to the extent we clear the mind the more we become aware so okay you follow that method but there must come a point when you see the source as it is you don't see it you be it you become it because you were always that and of course if you could sit in the presence of ramana maharshi yeah, you sit in that presence and they will do it for you it's contagious that is there <laughs> that's there but it should happen in you that's what i'm saying yeah absolutely of course there are still debates and probably will be for a long time in scientific and even spiritual circles as to whether consciousness is fundamental and and everything arises right. from that or it's just a product of the brain and if you're right. experiencing right. bliss yeah. in meditation maybe it's just because the process is somehow triggering these neurochemicals and and so on and right. it's not an intrinsic quality of consciousness and blah 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 you know we could go on and on with that and it's interesting that's right my students also keep telling me all that but i tell them now you are asking for the experience of pure being then you must practice meditation if you try to understand spirituality without the power of meditation you will only depend on a refined thought process isn't it you know your thought is affected by so many factors your sense impressions actually create a lot of your thought process your memories impinge on that so it's a lot of collected information this is what i want to say you can only know when you plunge into the source otherwise it's a recycling of uh, the all the data you have collected in various ways over a long period of time how will that yield this knowledge yeah you know raman maharshi used to characteristically say no thought is consistent with realization and he would say you can only realize the self through mrityu manas the dead mind vivekananda at one point in his life said i simply want to forget everything that i have known just before he attained the nirvikalpa samadhi state that was his state of mind this is obvious to a sadhak that you have to jerk the mind you have to purify it of everything so that the actual foundation of your thought process that which enlivens your thought comes to the forefront this is the whole thing about sadhana which i, I sometimes i feel it strange why this is not insisted upon by whom by a whole lot of spiritual practitioners do not believe that somewhere you have to undermine thought and bring awareness to the forefront you see in your conscious mind this has to happen if they are spiritual practitioners and they don't believe that then what are they doing what do they believe i don't know in fact uh, you find me here just now in the himalayas because you know every year i run and come to this place and whenever i can i try to be here and all that i do is <laughs> sit 
here you know this pin drop silence rick you should actually just experience this it's so marvelous it's absolutely silent and if you sit anywhere here in the himalayas and first of all you just hear the silence and ask yourself who is it who's hearing that's enough to take you into what we are meaning by awareness yeah i've been in some situations like that where it's very silent and pure and everything it's just very yeah. conducive based on what you're just saying a question came in from rahul agarwal in new delhi how long does a person like you after coming out of samadhi remember calendar dates and linear time to continue worldly activities and i'll rephrase this question slightly and in that you were just quoting ramana maharshi as saying mrityu manas dead mind that wouldn't sound appealing to the average person because they'd say wait a minute i have responsibilities and things i just i can't get into some blank state that i can't get out of my children will starve there's the gita yoga stakur karmani right be established in being but integrate it so that you can perform action on that foundation exactly actually speaking that state does not take you away from life or activity because what happens is there's a function between your vital energy and awareness if you experience the state of very clarified pure awareness your vital energy is always at its optimum so you will always have a lot of energy in your system see i have given those indices of happiness i don't know if you saw that video I... one of the indices of this state is very high energy output right both physically and mentally so you're mentally clear and always aware and full of energy and physically also and it also caters to all the problems of the body or the the kind of compulsions of the mind it caters to all that this state it doesn't take you away from life in fact it takes you deeply into real life and you whatever you do you'll do it better once you have experienced this state i simply can't understand how we have got that idea that these things take you away from life they take you deep into life to a certain extent it's a matter of one's dharma i mean you look at somebody like ramana maharshi and and you think whoa he must be in a very wonderful subjective mm. state but i wouldn't want to sit around on a couch for 30 40 years in a loincloth <laughs> you know i have inspirations and aspirations to do other things which the average person does and so i think it's important to always mention that one can achieve yeah. a very elevated state and yet be engaged in activity yeah you can take vivekananda as an example yeah, or yeah. shri ramkrishna himself oh, well they they did so much of great work after having realized that state so it's not like a dead end actually people try to interpret that state without reaching it and that's why they come to these kind of conclusions that it's a state of blankness it's not a state of blankness at all it is a state of full awareness due to which everything whatever you call yourself gets rejuvenated you we've mentioned some good examples mata amritananda mai uh, is another one right. i've spent a lot of time around her her daily routine would kill the average person within about a week you know the amount <laughs> of right. time she spends doing stuff and yet when you when you get close to her and you really tune into where she's at she's in a very profound deep state but it's completely compatible with incredibly dynamic activity look at that exactly that's what i'm saying i think this is a very wrong idea that uh, that kind of absorption causes you to be away from ordinary activity Yeah. It enhances life spectacularly in fact. All right. Well, I think we've covered that point. I mean, so, you know, there are some rare individuals who are going to be very 
reclusive and withdrawn, but it's not the average person. And therefore, this is available for everybody in the context of their natural inclinations and dharma. Right. Let me just throw a question in here that someone asked that I don't know if it's, it'll be a bit of an abrupt segue and then we'll get back to some other things. This is from Kanta Dadlani in Bombay, Mumbai. Why do some people experience negative reactions from others, even complete strangers? Well, why do you experience negative reactions? (laughs) I think I can give you a solution to that. I can't tell you why people are reacting like that around you. You must develop a kind of coverage, a kind of shield by being very positive yourself. You can watch the video on positive thinking. For most people, you know, that is the the level of spirituality they want. (laughs) That's why we created that video. All they want is a good mind. And if you continuously think positively and think well of others and have what is called goodwill towards everyone, uh, you know, the energies you attract will be only good around you. So then you won't have to bother so much about negative people around you. There are uh, toxic people. I'm not saying that uh, it's not there, but you will not draw them into your ambit. That I can tell you. So it depends entirely on the kind of energy you radiate. Also, we can think of examples of saintly people who were attacked or criticized in various ways. And like Jesus saying, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. He wasn't saying, oh, these terrible people. Right, right, right. That's the thing. Some guy wrote a very negative book about Ramana Maharshi, and he said, oh, put it at the entrance to the ashram. (laughs) Make it freely available to everybody. (laughs) And Vivekananda... The kind of criticisms he received and the way he dealt with them. Well, you should actually read those stories. And they are very inspiring because if you have a spiritual outlook and if you have spiritual experience, then I think no negativity can come close to you. That's the power of the spirit. You surely won't give in to negative vibrations and all that because you have that shield around you. It's a shield born of thought. It's your aura. There's something in physics called the Meissner effect, where a superconductor or superfluid, something that is extremely coherent within itself, is impervious to incoherent influences coming at it from the outside. Let's talk a little bit about ethics. You gave some talks about the yamas and niyamas as being foundational for spiritual practice. And there was a nice quote from Vivekananda. The infinite oneness of the soul is the eternal sanction of all morality, if I got that right. That's right. Swami Sarvapiananda sometimes says, you can have ethics without enlightenment, but you can't have enlightenment without ethics. That's right. (laughs) And he he emphasizes that it's quite foundational and even preliminary uh, in traditional spiritual paths. It's true of Buddhism also. Yes, that's pretty obvious because what does it do to you in your system? From the yogic standpoint, you know, it actually conserves your vital energy. You can't afford to compromise on your vital energies because that is going to lead you to your experience of realization. And an ethical life conserves all your energies and most of all the mental modes required for the higher life can come only with a very strong ethical foundation. In fact, without that, you're sure to fail in yoga. So that's why some of my IIT students ask me this. Why should I be good? So I tell them because, you know, that's the only way you can control your mind. You can have a stable mind and a stable life. 
Otherwise, your own vital energies will systematically destroy you. I bring this up because I'm in touch with so many people in the spiritual world, and I've seen examples of this where people are literally destroyed, who seem to start out pretty good, but yeah. somehow neglected this thing. I gave a talk on this at a conference a few years ago, and then with some friends, we founded this organization called the Association for Spiritual Integrity. There are examples of people who just seem to feel that they've attained some state of consciousness and they can do whatever they want, and it's just God doing it. And they indulge in all kinds of drugs and sex and all kinds of things and end up literally destroying themselves and becoming extremely toxic and then hurting a lot of people in the process. So it's a shame because spirituality is such a glorious undertaking yeah, and it's so important for the right. world and it's so hurtful and disillusioning to people when they get caught up in something like this. That's right. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, the Master's insistence on purifying the mind and uh, keeping it away from uh, what he would call woman and gold. You see, this is so central to the spiritual life because as long as that consciousness is there, body consciousness will remain. And then how will you explore into pure consciousness if you are already identified with something? So that is so fundamental that uh, that's why yam and niyam, if we can practice that for a long time, yoga will happen by itself. A sattvic life is most important for spiritual practice. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that you can't have a family. We have to keep saying this. But it doesn't mean you can't have a family life and have a job that earns you a good living and so on and so forth. But there's a certain balance or proportion to That's things. Right. You That's know? right. In the Vedic tradition, you have people like King Janaka and so on who were wealthy. And- That's right. There was one question on this that I, I was listening to your talk the other day. And you said, our perception of right and wrong comes from the mind. And then I wondered... Well, aren't there any more universal values of ethics? Because if it just comes from the mind, then it's totally relative. And one person's right might be another person's wrong. And then anything goes. Uh, So I'm not sure what you meant by that. Do you feel? Maybe that uh, I said that contextually, but uh, I do believe, yes, there is a universal set of, you can say, values, which are mandatory to human life. And that's what constitutes rhythm in uh, in Vedic parlance, you know, that which brings harmony into life. Ritam, R-I-T-A-M? Yes, yes, that's right. So they are uh, nothing but a code of universal laws and values which are mandatory. You you have to follow them. Ritam Bar Pragya, that's in in Patanjali, isn't it? No, that's a different idea. Oh, okay. (laughs) This rhythm in the Vedas is the essential rhythm of life, you can say, which is harmony, which comes through the spirit of yajna, which means the spirit of exchange and Understanding that the nature of life is a healthy exchange between the internal and the external, participating in universal life, which means giving of yourself, unselfish action, you can say, working for the good of all, service-mindedness. You can translate it in all these ways. But the essential thing is harmony between the individual and the cosmos. Without this, you know, again, your vital energies will not remain harmonious and no higher spiritual experience is possible. Here in the United States, we have fundamentalist religious people who are mm. very moralistic and very strict and always criticizing those who aren't like them and so on and so forth. And then they usually are exposed in some kind of scandals. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Turns out they were not practicing mm. what they were preaching. 
when we say ethics, sometimes it brings that kind of thing to mind, you know, kind of goody two shoes, moralistic, Mm -hmm. repressive kind of thing. But I think the context in which we want to frame this is just that this mind body system is our vehicle through life. And there are certain things which enhance its functioning and make the journey smoother. And there are certain things which damage it. Like if you put dirt in your gas tank on your car, it's, it's not going to perform very well. So you just need to take care of this, this mechanism. That's right. That was a realization I had when I was about 18 and decided I'd better <laughs> stop taking drugs <laughs> back in the 60s. What are the kleshas? The kleshas are actually the afflictions which the human mind suffers from. They are generalized in the Patanjali Yoga Sutras as being fivefold. The first klesha is avidya, which is supposed to be the cause for the other kleshas, which is ignorance of the purusha, the real nature of our being. And then from that arises asmita, which means a wrong idea of yourself, a sense of yourself, which is not based on the reality of your being. And I think all of us have that asmita. We have a sense of I am, but it's identified with something of the body and mind and not with the source. So that's asmita. And then as a result, you have rag, dvesh and abhinivesh, which are attachment, aversion and false fears. So this is pretty obvious. These are all the kleshas, the afflictions due to which our mind goes into states of negativity and we feel a sense of moroseness. You know, the people are planning getaways all the time. Even a whole lot of tourists have just now come here to this pangot because they just want to keep away from their mind, which is so wrongly conditioned by the kleshas. Yeah, it's also 115 degrees Fahrenheit in oh, much yes, of India right yes, now. <laughs> yes, Delhi is just sizzling in the heat. Uh, almost it's 45, 46 degrees. So additionally, physical klesha, you can say. All this keep the mind and the body very uh, unhappy, due to which we are seeking for a whole lot of other experiences. So people don't actually work on the getting rid of kleshas. They only try to divert their mind to something else to escape these afflictions. That's the problem. Is getting rid of them just doing spiritual practice as we've already described or is there more to it? There is a definite way. And in fact, Patanjali's Ashtang Yoga is the means to get rid of kleshas. That is how he puts it. So Ashtang Yoga was actually calibrated to put an end to mental afflictions, which are due to all these factors. But in order to succeed in this, you must see these afflictions for what they are and not superimpose them on factors outside of yourself. Like we usually do this when we have anger in our head, it's due to that person or due to that circumstance happening like that. We do that. And we don't recognize the enormous effect of avidya in our mind. I don't know who I am. And I'm very happy to remain identified with what I am not. And also a big ego about it. This is a huge problem. But we don't see it like that. That's why we don't recognize the afflictions, these kleshas. And that's why Ashtang Yoga, then the solution doesn't appear uh, very impressive to us. Only one who has felt the actual uh, misery of being ignorant about my own being will start the spiritual journey rightly, isn't it? Hmm? If I'm very happy being what I'm not, 
and very satisfied with uh, an ego which is baseless and identified with a whole lot of things which are so temporary then how will i be serious on my spiritual journey tell me you must feel the sheer sorrow of not knowing who we are fundamentally everything begins from there yeah it would be nice if society were structured and education were structured such that one came to that realization in the normal course of their mm. development as a child as it is That's most right. people never come to it and those who do often have to go through a lot of difficulties before they do yes because they have trapped themselves in so many ways and the mind is so deeply conditioned in so many negative patterns that compulsive behaviors just they are sort of trapped in their yeah. own minds here in the west it's not really part of the culture and there in india yeah, is it they, any better not in urban india i wouldn't say it's any better but i have seen this the insistence on developing good sanskars is there in uh, many pockets of india in indian traditional families in fact they talk this language almost all of our uh, local languages the native languages of india have the word sanskar that inner impressions have to be purified and cleansed and deliberately made such that your life is tuned towards higher values and you don't compromise uh, vital energy on silly thought and all kinds of emotions because you know it's a huge trap you know there's a practical significance to it too i i've often heard this indian phrase the means collect around sattva do you know the sanskrit yes. of that the means collect around sattva it's a famous saying isn't it to me what that means is not only for the sake of spiritual practice but for the sake of actually being successful in life if one is yeah, yeah. living a sattvic life things just seem to come your way more easily that's know? right that's right you're right because it's all to do with energy you know this world of manifestation is as to do with energy and if you generate the right kind of energy you will pull the right kind of things towards you and not only your physical or psychic or emotional energy there's an intelligence in nature that orchestrates the universe yes. and if if we align with that then you get the parking place you get the green <laughs> light and many more much more significant things just help you other people they're always running into obstacles that's right it's the grace of god as devotees would put it that's a good way of putting it mm -hmm. yeah a, a good mind is really the grace of god a mind which has uh, turned away from good sanskars is uh, bound to have this deviant perverted ways of thinking and action and it only harms itself it's the sheer grace of god when you have a pure mind yeah okay here's a question that's not going to come up in the ordinary course of our conversation so i'll just pop it in here this is from mohan rao in cookville tennessee before i ask this question let me just say that i've interviewed people who are mediums and psychics and and things like that and i've interviewed people who have had near death experiences and past life memories and all that kind of stuff not that that's the ultimate reality of things but it demonstrates in a way that it can actually be measured scientifically in some cases that there is more to life than the surface value that when this body dies there's something continues and so that's why I, i interview such people from time to time but his question is from a vedantic point of view what are your thoughts on mediums psychics and connecting with people on the other side well from the vedantic standpoint <laughs> see there's no other side <laughs> right and because when they don't give that importance to individuality or the person itself there's no question of the other side but let me tell you this 
the human unconscious and even the human subconscious that itself goes so deep that a whole lot of these experiences i i don't uh, say they are unreal or untrue or anything like that they can happen in any life any life which has found a way towards that which has removed the blocks which make us unaware of this uh, particular uh, you can say the source of your uh, mental thought process so those who have found a way to that can become mediums and psychics and in fact there are a, there are people who have done a whole lot of good things by becoming that like edgar casey for for example right so all this is very true it only points out to the depths of your own mind but it is only when you step into pure consciousness or awareness that you give mind its place until then all this is very real and it holds and in fact you will have to pass through a whole lot of all these mental processes before you arrive at realization you know in yoga they are very clear about this a whole lot of vibhutis can come to you and this acute sense of perception vibhutis uh, means what sense of perception vibhutis are different powers actually oh siddhis yeah Yeah. different powers which are not normal right and uh, very enhanced uh, perceptions uh, augmented perceptions you can see all these can uh, are part of the spiritual journey according to yoga not that it comes into ev- the life of every spiritual aspirant but you must not get uh, sidetracked by these that's the whole point if you want to achieve the goal of just want an answer to who am i you must focus on the i sense in you and not what your mind is doing or what came up or what light you saw there and you see a hundred things because you know whatever gets touched by clarified awareness will become very bright and effulgent and it it appears like an ineffable experience but you should not like you must rather ask who's experiencing it that's the only way to go into the source of your being so all these things have to be put aside when it comes to a real vedantic inquiry but not that they will not come into the life of a spiritual aspirant yeah so you just said at the, at the beginning of that from the vedantic perspective there is no other side but vedanta is anta it's the end of the veda and mm-hmm. there is also the vyavaharika satyam you know transactional reality yes. level yes. of things and that has its relevance i mean we could also say from the vedantic perspective there is no hunger or there is no war or anything else because there's actually nothing right. but hunger needs to be dealt with and war needs to be dealt right. with on, on its own level that's right many people confuse the way and the goal and talk in the same terms regarding both but uh, let's be clear about this that i think vivekananda put it in the best possible way that religion actually spirituality is about manifestation manifesting the divinity within which is already there and bringing it out bringing it to the forefront and do this by any means he said work worship sahikandra these are all the yogas you see yoga will lead you to vedant and you just stick to your method and it can be a mixed path also like you can be using many yogas to move and yogas are the constitutional necessities of our being due to our present identifications so you can't dispense with them 
Yeah, there's all these different things, right? There's yoga and there's there's bhakti and there's yes. raja yoga and karma yoga and all these different right. things. And I can't think of very many examples of anyone who is so exclusively engaged in any one of those that they're not also somewhat engaged in the others. So that's right. There, there might be a preponderance of one or the other, but most for that's most right. people, it's a you know you have a toolkit yeah. with many tools in it. Yeah, because you have all these faculties in yourself. And how can you put them aside? You you are a thinker and you are emoting. You are a emotional person. You have a propensity towards work and action, and you have a tendency to meditate. So you have all these. So it's a constitutional necessity that you adopt every yoga. Perhaps we might say that underlying all the different yogas is a common denominator, which again is pure consciousness. And yes. if one can take recourse to that, in addition to whatever mode of activity you engage in that will render the activity more fruitful. Yes, yes. The idea is that that should dominate our uh, thought process. You see, you take up a method, but it's a method towards this. Right. And in fact, the method itself is being illumined by this. Finally, you understand that you are the goal you were seeking. <laughs> you know, that Rumi's uh, statement, I knocked and the door opened and then I realized I'm knocking from within. <laughs> That's great. I heard you mention in one talk the three conditions of sadhana, purity, patience, and perseverance. And yes. uh, we've talked quite a bit about purity in, uh, already, but let's talk more about patience and perseverance. Yes, without patience, I think you go nowhere because these things take time for you to overcome the wrong kind of conditioning which you already have, to build the right sanskars, the building blocks, and then to concentrate, to build focus in your system. It takes time. So patience must be there. The problem lies here. You know, most people, especially youngsters, they are taking up methods for a few days. So I was telling them that story of uh, Sri Ramakrishna. You see that you start digging a well and then you don't, you go to the three, four feet and then you don't find water. Then you start uh, digging in another place. Again, you go only to four feet. And then you start to take up a third place. That's no way to find water. You must dig in one place only. And for that, you require patience, obviously. And perseverance. Yeah, yeah, perseverance. It's, you require the grit. <laughs> in my own experience, anyway, I mean, I was a very flaky guy. I dropped out of high school a couple of times and was very inconsistent and all. But when I finally learned to meditate when I was 18, it was so gratifying and so beneficial yes. from day one that... Right. I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but in fact, I haven't missed one ever since then, you know, 54 years. It didn't take a lot of discipline. I wasn't a very disciplined guy. It was so rewarding that I looked forward to it. You had the sanskars, Rick. That's why you found it like that. Yeah. <laughs> Just clicked. Actually, it's such a liberating experience for the mind, one bout of real meditation. And you'll know it's the same as state of existence. Yeah, it was such a relief. Exactly. So when we say patience and perseverance, it sounds like we're having to go through this arduous, <laughs> sort of boring, uh, 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 I got to keep doing this thing. But it's, it's, it's a lot, it can be a lot easier than that. It's, it's rewarding yeah. all the way along the way. That's right. Yeah. When you have similar company, it's all the more beneficial and encouraging. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when I first learned, um, nobody around me was interested in it. And I used to, I was in this place that was very busy with 
kids and dogs and music. And I, there was a tree house out and back. And I used to go up into the tree house and <laughs> to, mm. to do my meditation mm. kind of at the edge of the woods. Here's another one. There's all these gems, which are traditional Vedantic gems, but I, I want to touch upon them as we go. The fourfold qualifications for sadhana, without which you should not embark on reading Vedanta, Viveka, Vairagya, Sadshampat, and Mumukshutva. Let's talk about yeah. those. Yeah, see, they are pretty obvious, actually. If you think Vivek is to do with uh, philosophical discrimination, which means you are able to clearly analyze what actually gives you happiness and what doesn't. The nature of life experiences, you are able to uh, clearly analyze them. And then Vairagya is, you know, the nature of our mind can be pursuing something which is fruitless just because it's habituated to do that. So when you show a certain amount of indignation towards such activity, then it's called Vairagya. Indignation means, or dispassion? Yeah, dispassion. But the expression of the dispassion can be a sort of indignation. But what I mean to say is the nature of our mind is it can be pursuing something which it knows is fruitless. Just because the habit, the tendency is there. So closing the gate to this is vairagya, which means you develop a sense of dispassion or uh, dislike, indignation towards this kind of activity, which is outward bound. Which like if you, you know let's say, you have a cigarette habit or something. Yeah, you show a bit of anger towards it and it's, it's vairagya. Even disgust, perhaps, like, oh, this is yucky. Don't want to do this. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Your mind will act naturally do it if you have that vivek because that's the cause and this is the effect each of these four are like that please see this and then shatsampati are a group of six qualities which are very essential for a steady mind it includes shama uh, dhamma upariti titiksha shraddha and samadhan might be worth and, going through those yeah shama is deep calmness of mind Dhamma is the control of sense organs. See how important all this is. As long as they are rushing towards sense objects, no control of mind is possible. So Shama Dhamma, they go together. Uparati is your ability to turn away from objects which divert your attention. Your ability to move away from that. Rati is attachment. Uparati is you turn away from that. Detachment. And Titiksha is... Great forbearance, ability to bear with all the different conditions, circumstances of life. Well, you know, in places like Delhi and even here in the Himalayas, we get to practice natural titiksha. <laughs> because <laughs> if the weather is like that, the pollution levels can be like that, that you simply have to bear with it in order to keep a very stable mind and do what you can to continue a normal life without getting depressed, without uh, reacting abnormally. So, Titiksha is very important. And then you have Shraddha, which is Astikya Buddhi, actually. A positive state of mind, which helps you absorb the best in every situation. It helps you absorb knowledge. Sometimes Shraddha is defined as faith. Yeah, faith. But Shankaracharya defines it as Astikya Buddhi, which means a positive frame of mind, which can accept the reality around you, the truth of things. And then um, Samadhan is focus, ability to concentrate, which means you have a very steady mind. So these are uh, six-fold qualifications, which are the Shat Sampati, six treasures. 
and mumukshatvam of course is your hankering for liberation which means an unconditioned uncluttered pure state of existence which of obviously all of us are hankering for yeah and so, these are said to be qualities without which you should not embark on reading vedanta but obviously all of these things there's no end to their yeah. possible growth and so you're not going to wait until you're perfect in all these things because that'll never happen would it be true to say that if you are attracted to reading vedanta you might as well start doing it and that perhaps indicates a certain degree of development of all these qualities yeah the very fact that if you are deeply interested in vedant and you are doing it by default every day on everyday basis then it means you have these qualities in some measure and you can of course always improve and uh, further increase them because without vivek and vairagya why at all would you come to spiritual books tell me <laughs> yeah and so i guess to wrap up this point if you feel inclined to do anything along these lines read vedanta great but you'll find that your success with it and the benefit you derive from it will grow as you develop these other qualities that's right yeah that's right in fact if you make a habit of karma yoga mm-hmm. and uh, serving others a whole lot of these qualities spontaneously come into you yeah swami sarvapriyananda was telling a story the other night about these monks in the hospital that was um, run by the vedanta society is the vedanta society the umbrella organization or is that just one thing under a bigger umbrella what do you call the overall organization Actually, it's uh, Ramakrishna Mathan Mission, and okay. the Western centers are called Vedanta Societies. I see. Well, We are the women's uh, monastic group, which is actually independent of, uh, administratively independent, but ideologically, it's the same. It's the women's see. wing of the Ramakrishna Mission. Yeah, Good. Sharda Mission. Yeah. So anyway, these couple of monks were taking care of all these people in this hospital, and I guess a lot of the people were older monks and all, and they were. they're changing bedpans and doing all this dirty work That's and true. and some people were criticizing them they, you guys are monks they were in fact they called them some derogatory term i forget what it was because they spent their whole days doing this stuff yeah, which yes. didn't seem very vedantic mm-hmm. but <laughs> then they would spend their evenings in samadhi because the karma yoga they were doing was so purifying that it yeah, would set yeah. them up for That's that true. yeah <laughs> swami turiyanand ji maharaj had said this that just 3 days you serve selflessly and i assure you you will have deep meditation samadhi like state just 3 days of selfless work what do you think are the mechanics of that why is that so that is so because you see ultimately it is our sense of individuality or ego that prevents the ultimate plunge into pure consciousness so in karma yoga you are i i'm really telling you it's the best way to purify yourself you just keep doing good to others gladdening other minds without any any expectation or anticipation of benefit for yourself and what will happen by that is this sense of ego which is falsely identified will drop by itself ultimately that is the big block the, the barrier for self realization isn't it so that is obliterated naturally in karma yoga We talked about this earlier but I've heard karma yoga defined as being not merely action but action in a state of yoga like yeah. chapter 2 verse 48 of the Gita established in yoga perform action so right. so there's this depth to it it's not just frenetic service because sometimes people yeah. can burn out doing service that's a problem with 
Doctors Without Borders and people who are trying to help in various capacities, they get burned out. So if you can take recourse to the self throughout, you know, on a regular basis, then you have a foundation. Yes. In fact, uh, the extent of your selflessness means that the genuine feeling of uh, not I in the actual act will only come to the extent you are established in the real self. Yeah. So then that makes you naturally selfless. Then whatever activity you do naturally becomes karma yoga. Mm-hmm. So that state will naturally lead you into spiritual liberation, isn't it? Good. Another question came in from Kanta Dadlani in uh, Bombay. Not everyone is able to master the scriptures as wonderfully as yourself and Swami Sarvapriyananda. Can one still walk the spiritual path without having to learn the scriptures by heart? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> If you have been listening to this interview from the beginning, I told you that you'll, you're better off, in fact, if you don't have the burden of a whole lot of thought processes in your mind. If you just know the goal and you are able to manufacture an uncluttered, completely clear, pure state of mind, that will take you closer to the goal than any scripture. Because finally, it is your awareness that has to come to the forefront. I'm again repeating It's an unfoldment, a transformation of your own consciousness. And nothing can do it for you if it doesn't happen within yourself, by yourself. So it's okay if you don't study the scriptures. The only thing which Sri Ramakrishna recommended for spiritual aspirants is a burning desire to know the truth. Where If you are a bhakta, you will say a burning desire for God. If you are a yogic type, you will say, to unfold higher awareness, if you are a jnani type, you will say to know Brahman, whatever you call it, a burning desire to transcend this limited level of existence and go into our original state of pure bliss. If that hankering is there and the conscious mind is fully doing this, able to do this, then uh, well, that's enough qualification to go into higher states of samadhi and all that. It's not mandatory that everybody should know the scriptures. In fact, people ask me, if you say this, then why at all did you dive into the scriptures? Or why did you, even people ask me, why did you renounce the world? If you say that spiritual life only enhances life, why did you run away from life? But I'm telling you, we did not run away from life as you understand it. In fact, to have an overcluttered, wrongly conditioned mind is renunciation. You know, you have renounced the essential bliss of life. To have a pure mind and whatever is required for that, to go into that. You can't say you have gone away from life. You have dived deeper into the real taste of life. By giving away the the unnecessary things, the wrong attachments, the wrong conditioning, the negativity of life. By keeping a little distance from all that, you have gone into the, the rarefied state of your own being. How can you call that renunciation? In fact, Swami Brahmananji used to say that people who only indulge in, uh, in sensual pleasures, they, have, they are the renunciants. They have renounced the essential peace and bliss of life. You must know how to live maturely and that you will know only if you dive into awareness. If you bring your mind into your hands, until then you can't live maturely. You are just being carried away by different forces. That's all. And you, you're calling that life. let's say you're outdoors and it's windy and rainy and cold and you go into the house and the house is nice and warm and dry. You're not renouncing the outdoors, really. You're going towards something which provides greater greater joy and comfort. 
<laughs> in fact the people who uh, initially told me that why are you taking up this kind of life they are the happiest people today you know they are so happy in fact they tell me that if we had known this kind of a path was there for young women when we were young we would have definitely taken it here's a follow up question from mohan rao in cookville tennessee about your analogy of digging the shallow wells or one deep well whether you dig several shallow wells or one deep well are they not related to one samskaras and one really has no control oh in other words he's saying won't your samskaras compel you to either dig a lot of little shallow wells or buckle down and dig one deep one yeah yeah he, he's right actually ultimately no matter how much knowledge you have your samskaras will dictate your life please see this he's right in what he's saying we always give the example of you know duryodhan on the battlefield of mm-hmm. uh, mahabharat war and when bhishma is charging him and saying oh, you idiot it's due to you that the war is taking and you don't know what you're doing you don't know the difference between dharma and adharma and he says janami dharmam <laughs> duryodhan says janami dharmam nachame pravrittim janami adharmam nachame nivrittim i know very well what is the right thing to do but i am not able to do it that's my problem and i know what is adharma but i can't desist from it so this is the problem with the human mind we may have knowledge enough but no sanskar backup so when you don't have a backpack of solid sanskars impressions which impel you towards right action no matter how much you know you will only do the resultant of your net sanskars in fact you know how vivekananda defined character he said character is nothing but a bundle of sanskars he did not relate it with the exact conscious thought process the knowledge that you have it's ultimately the resultant of your sanskars and if you have not worked on manufacturing the right sanskars no matter how much information you collect you will only go the way your subconscious and unconscious impels you and that can mean you can go anywhere unless you have consciously built these building blocks of great character a pure satvic life inner clarity and a kind of austere kind of life so all this if it can be brought into the youth an inspiration towards all this then i think that's a big way of making change because you know as abraham maslow said the only way you can change a man is by changing his awareness of himself so yes you will only dig as <laughs> as per your sanskars and not not as per the knowledge of geography you have yeah but the something you just said is the key to it which is you said building better sanskars or something and and yeah, so that yeah. that implies that we do have some wiggle room we do have some degree of free yes. will we might be compelled by sanskars but we're not in most cases the vast majority we're not like 100% compelled there's some degree of volition And yeah. you know that nursery rhyme? I don't know if you know this in India, but row 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 your boat gently down the yes. stream. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so the stream is carrying you along and you can't do much about that, but you can row the boat and you can steer it this way and that and avoid rocks and things like that. So you have a certain amount of leeway. Yeah, you do. That's right. And that can make all the difference in the world exercising that leeway and then the more you exercise it, the more freedom you gain and the less the slave you are to the samskaras that's right in fact uh, vivekananda always said that you are the makers of your destiny <laughs> he didn't say well it's all done and you only go by the 
blocks in your subconscious and no you are the creators of your destiny at any given moment of time you have the choice to make the right decision but why i am insisting on sanskars is even the act of making a decision this is there in one of the books i think it's there right in signs of happiness how many things happen before you make a decision in your own brain there are a whole lot of processes going on i think there's a talk on determinism and free will which is on the nrcv channel so you can go through that talk there i have given all the scientific analysis for this that it it takes so many processes before you arrive at a decision and that's why you must pay attention to sanskars in the early years of life although yes that much of a little bit of choice is given to you at any time in your life if you have the right sanskars you know your choice will work magically for you your choices i think it's important to emphasize that because there are philosophers like sam harris and other people who argue that we don't have free will and they go into all kinds of yeah yeah details about that <laughs> and it's not people's practical experience i mean most people feel they have some degree of choice i mean ultimately we could say god is doing everything or something like that but on the level on which we live you have to sort of live in tune with the reality that you're in and that's not that's right what is that saying there's better is death in one's own dharma because one can perform it don't try to perform the dharma of an if yes, you turn to what's yeah. real for you Right. rather than transposing some other higher state true, and trying true. to live by that then you'll progress very true a question came in from uh, Evie Chris in Ohio which is related to a lot of things we're saying she's talking about maintaining the peace of the self in the midst of trauma can we somehow disentangle our self capitalist from the content of experience and therefore allow the self to shine through and experience peace even though we might be in the midst of traumatic circumstances yeah that's what essentially yoga is about to disconnect you from the thought process but for it to happen as an actual nervous disconnection it requires practice it's not uh, it won't happen just like that and, like anything uh, you don't become an excellent yeah. violinist just like that right, you know, whatever right right in fact it requires long practice and uh, it is possible to keep distant from the body mind complex that's a possibility so then the trauma doesn't exactly feel like you are experiencing the trauma uh, you just know that there are negative energies around you but you you know here knowledge translates into power when you have knowledge through yoga so then you have the ability to change that traumatic situation also through your positive energy knowledge at this level always translates into power the ability to change good Well, hopefully, Evie, we answered your question. Okay, let's talk more about happiness. We talked about it a little bit in the mm-hmm. beginning, and you you wrote a whole book about it, which I listened to. I measure books in terms of how long they are. So yours was about eight and a half hours because <laughs> I turned it into audio, and you had a lot to say about happiness. It's a great book. We talked about it earlier, and we we talked about how most people think happiness is to be found outside them somehow, and yet. ultimately it's within there's a quote from what is it the upanishads happiness lies in the infinite there is no happiness in the finite yeah yeah nalpe sukham asti bhumaiva sukham chandogya upanishad what would you say to a person who said well i'm happy when i play tennis i'm happy when i watch a good movie i'm happy when i play with my children those things all bring me happiness why are you saying there's no happiness in the finite 
yeah, I also feel happy when I'm in the Himalayas. I feel happy <laughs> when I'm in my room quietly. So mental happiness, the happiness we get from whatever objects and ambience and all that, that is to be distinguished from the happiness you get out of pure being or what we call awareness. There are two types of happiness, you know, the happiness which your mind can generate and which objects can generate in your mind. You must have studied that ladder of happiness which I have given. There are different rungs of the ladder, you see. So you have the sensate level of happiness, then you have happiness born of thought, and then you have happiness born of intellectual engagement, you have happiness born of service, and then you have the bliss of meditation. And then there, now, isn't there the Taittiriya Upanishad, which has that logarithmic scale of Yeah, in, in a slightly different way, they, they are putting it. Yeah, that's yeah. right. If you uh, do the of math on that, of happiness. it's possible yeah. the knower Brahman is like billions of times more happy than... than yes, <laughs> yes, that's right. So if you check it out and see that uh, when we talk of happiness, we are usually talking of one of the rungs of this ladder. And what the mistake we make is we try to optimize happiness only along that one rung. We don't climb the ladder. That's the whole problem. What yoga is actually trying to do is it is raising the bar of happiness through awareness, through the influx of higher awareness in the mind. So they will tell you, you must climb the ladder. You can't try to optimize happiness on the first rung of the ladder and call it greater happiness. You can't do that because you must have heard of the hedonic treadmill. It's a famous concept in today's psychology. The very nature of happiness born of sense objects is that after a certain time, you'll feel sick of it. Okay, <laughs> well, you can try it out and see it. It's open for experimentation. Say you drink every day for five days or you party every day for five days. The fifth day, you won't like it. So the, this is the nature of that level of happiness. So no matter how many objects you collect around you, you cannot maximize happiness in this way. But you can climb the next rung of the ladder, which means you try to develop thought and emotion to such a level that that gives you greater happiness than mere objects at the sense level. A creative thinking, creative writing, you know, if you write a poem, you just suddenly feel so happy. And deep level intellectual engagement, even if it's a mathematical problem or a game of chess or anything that interests you, it's a higher level of happiness. After the experience, you realize that my mind was so steady and you, you enjoy so much more happiness. The yeah, happiness you know, of when the state of Israel was founded, they tried to recruit Albert Einstein to become its yeah, yeah, yeah. I always give that example. Oh, yeah. You tell the story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what he said, presidentship is... Yeah, they wanted him to be president. come and go, but uh, an equation is forever. So I would rather invest in knowledge and in intellectual engagement than in uh, ruling a country. This is what I'm saying. You can raise the bar of uh, happiness through awareness. Higher and higher happiness is possible for you. But if you want to only maximize along one rung, you will go into depression. This is what the modern youth force is actually deluded with. You know, They feel that excitability mode and drinks and drugs and all these things will give them greater happiness. The more they collect it around themselves, the happier they will be. Now check out and see for yourself. They will only put you in the hedonic treadmill. That is the current theory of pleasure and even positive psychology, in fact. Initially, they gave you, Martin Seligman gave you the equation P is equal, H is equal to P plus E plus M. 
where peace, pleasure, ease, engagement, M is meaning. Happiness constitutes this, he said. But later he modified the equation. He said, no, it's called Parma, the new theory. It says that it's not to do with pleasure because pleasure gives very little happiness. Beyond a certain point, it actually causes revulsion. But positive thinking and positive feelings give you genuine happiness. So Parma theory says it is positive emotion and engagement. R is good relationships. M is meaning and A is achievement. These are the factors for happiness. So I built further on this theory by saying that awareness in the mind gives happiness. Ultimately, yeah. Which is a characteristic Upanishadic idea. I was a student of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi for many years, and he said some interesting things about happiness. One was that the expansion of happiness is the very purpose of creation. That was a good one. That also everyone's mind, from the amoeba to the human being, has a natural tendency to seek a field of greater happiness. And and I kind of hook those two together. It's that fundamental drive in creation itself, in the universe itself, to expand happiness that manifests in us as a natural tendency to seek a field of greater happiness. But as you've been saying, we get limited returns on trying to find it in sensory pleasures. Some people say diminishing marginal return. (laughs) Yeah. Some people say that um, the happiness we derive from external experiences is actually a reflection of the inner happiness, the way the light of the moon is a reflection of the sunlight. Do you think that's true? Not that I think that's true. That's true because if you study the epistemology, you will see that what exactly is happening is the gladness produced in your mind due to an object. It was generated, see, it is this much we can understand that happiness here was a state of my mind, maybe stimulated by that object. But Vedanta adds something more to this. What it says is somewhere you touched essence of your being, you touched awareness and you superimpose the joy you got out of that on the object. Your mind, because it's tinged with Maya, it produces this delusive effect. You start giving credit to the object. Actually, what happened was your mind somehow, due to the stimulation, due to whatever reason, it plunged within and touched the core of your being. So there was a spurt of joy. So you're saying that, let's say, when you get a new car, somehow that acquisition is a catalyst for a momentary glimpse of the inner being. Yes, yes. Because your identity was deeply involved with the car. It's your car. And your sense of I there, somehow, you can say your mind reflected more of the light of pure awareness. So your mind gladdened. But you superimposed the entire experience on the car and gave credit to the car alone. This is the Vedantic understanding. And then, of course, we know that happiness derived from those things doesn't last, at least not the initial degree of happiness that we get the day we drive it off the car lot. So explain again the mechanics of why the satisfaction diminishes. See, now if you suddenly realized that that car belongs to your son, (laughs) (laughs) not to you. (laughs) Okay, suppose you suddenly realize that. What will happen to the happiness in your mind? What I told you was your identity somehow generated the happiness because you started feeling my car. Now your identity does all these things. 
ultimately whatever mental happiness you experience it's a reflection it's a shadow of that pure consciousness in a, a fairly clear state of mind that's why it's feeling happy but you manage to superimpose it on the object now any object any object can produce happiness to you why is it that after a continuous period of enjoyment with that object then you are no longer happy with it because happiness was inherent in your mind somehow it leaked into that portion of your mind which gladdened you due to the presence of that object but it was not dependent on that object because after 5 days the object will no longer make you happy so it was a state of your mind somehow generated by the self but the mechanism can only be understood in a state close to samadhi how the mind becomes happy and it is not due to the object this is the delusive effect of maya that it makes you believe because it superimposes it makes you believe the object made me happy it was an opening of your own mind to your own being you discover it by yourself because no matter how much theory i tell you i told you experiences in the first person always you must get it by yourself yeah you know if it's true that it's our natural tendency to seek greater happiness it's obvious how external experiences are not going to satisfy that because you just can't keep buying new cars or having new partners or you know eating more food i mean there's there's a limit to what you can do in the external world but there's no limit to the clarity and fullness with which inner consciousness can be appreciated or yeah. unfolded so that alone can really gratify that and because the the happiness inherent in that is infinite where the mm-hmm. the happiness in a car or whatever could never be infinite that can really right. gratify or, or fulfill that natural tendency yeah i think uh, we get a very good understanding when we see the lives of uh, realized masters like shri ramkrishna for instance all the people who have seen him uh, and usually he was in the state of samadhi as you know the all three pictures of uh, shri ramkrishna are of him in samadhi and you know how they have uh, described him one disciple actually describes him as his face appeared like a cracked melon it was just radiating so much of joy and bliss that it stunned their minds and when shri ramkrishna would be in bhava samadhi everyone around him felt something of that bhav bhav means was like a, explain yeah. what bhav means bhav means a very intense state of you can't even call it elevated emotion it's a transcendental state of emotional energy which person who has reached that state of samadhi attains so it's a samadhi produced by intense bhav by intense emotion you can say there is so much more it's not just emotion the word bhav has no english equivalent unfortunately but that state shri ramkrishna would radiate such an amount of energy and joy happiness that all around him it became like a mad mob you know they all would yeah get infected by that joy and attain something of it and start laughing and ecstatic and dancing and all that people who saw this from outside they would feel what is this going on in this room have they drunk too much they would feel like that and uh, once somebody asked shri ramakrishna that what exactly do you feel in samadhi and he said well would you understand if i say if a fish is suddenly released from a small pot into the ocean how would it feel that kind of splashing liberating joy i feel in samadhi 
I can't imagine that when he went into samadhi, he was coming out of an ordinary state to begin with, the kind that the average person experiences. He must have already been in a very blissful, profound yes. state. It's just that he, well, you explain. What's the difference? Sri Ramakrishna's state of normal consciousness was far from ordinary. Otherwise, how do you think a person would go into a state of samadhi just like that at the least suggestion? He would go plunge into that state. And I, I can tell you this, that um, initially people who saw Sri Ramakrishna and his divine ecstatic state could not understand it for some time at least. And those who understood it, well, they actually felt that radiance on themselves. And there are so many such experiences with Sri Ramakrishna. In fact, have you read the literature about him, even the not the which, some, but not exhaustively. Yeah, I think you should read the uh, literature brought out by Swami Chaitanandji, uh, Sri Ramakrishna and his divine play, these books. And please uh, see every incident there. It's beautifully described. In, just concentrate on one paragraph and you'll get a picture of the master's mind. You know, something <laughs> divine and far from ordinary. That's, that's pretty obvious. Yeah, he was considered he to be lived, an avatar, right? Yes, he lived in God consciousness. We don't exactly understand what the avatar's consciousness is like. But you can know it by the manifestation, you know, by the peace and bliss he radiated. And the people around him actually felt that. This is the litmus test of realization that you, you catch something of it in that presence. Yeah. Like the Buddha, for example, wherever he walked for a radius of about two miles, people could know the Buddha was around by the peace they felt. Well, there's a verse in the Yoga Sutras um, about peace in the radius of a, of a realized yes, being, right? Exactly. Maharshi Mahesh Yogi's master, who was um, Swami Brahmananda Saraswati, who was Shankaracharya of Jyotirmath, when he was doing tapas in the, in the forest, it was said that the animals wouldn't fight with each other in about yeah, two mile, right. mile radius of him. Yeah. I have another question about happiness. I wrote, wrote this one out because it's a little bit long. It's about distinguishing bliss from happiness. We haven't really talked about the kosha model, but you can elaborate on that a bit if you like. But the Ananda Maya Kosha means it's a blissful sheath, but it's still a sheath. And it includes the word Maya, Ananda Maya Kosha. And so as nice as it is, it's still a layer of ignorance, I guess. And therefore, would it be something which it would be something which changes, I presume, and that which changes can't bring ultimate or lasting happiness. So when you speak of happiness, are you alluding to that which lies beyond that sheath? Yeah, the ultimate bliss, of course, is described as belonging to the self, not to the Anandmai Kosh. Anandmai Kosh, uh, here the Mai is not Maya. It is uh, oh, okay. that sheath which is suffused with Ananda, joy, because it is closest to the Atman. Is the causal body. Anandmai Kosh is the causal body. The rest, Vijnanmai Kosh, Manomai Kosh, all this come under the subtle body. So because it is closest to the Atman, it radiates a lot of the light of the Atman, which is bliss. So that's why it's called Anandmai Kosh. So it understand. in itself is not intrinsically blissful, but it's so close, like something yeah. that's next to a hot fire gets heated up. It's exactly. close to the self. I see. Okay, exactly, good. Exactly. Something like that. So what they are trying to say is that awareness percolates into your system and 
to the extent that these sheets or koshas are pure and transparent the more awareness will percolate into the system awareness includes bliss i told you it's synonymous with happiness and existence it's the same thing they are not three qualities of the atman it's the same thing you must understand it through the practice that's why i'm saying you and not intellectually and then you understand is the same thing so to the extent these koshas are transparent enough that much of light will stream into them you can actually see this in a spiritual master i can tell you this even a, a great sadhak you can actually see it in his physical frame the light he exudes since we mentioned this let's have you explain the panchakosha model for a minute just so we can get out as much knowledge as possible yeah panchakosha model is a way of understanding the human personality paradigm according to vedant it includes the outermost sheath is the annamai kosha which is the body so you see is the only the external crust of your personality beyond that is the pranamai kosha the vital energy sheath then there's the manomai kosha the mind then there's the vijnanamai kosha which is the seat of your intellect and will and the anandamai kosha which is the final sheath which covers the atman you can say and but the actual core of your being is the atman it is the real you and you as it were manifest through these five sheets but you must remember this that traditionally in vedant the annamai kosh is the body we call it the body the pranamai kosh manomai kosh and vijnanamai kosh together are called the subtle body the subtle body and then the anandamai kosh is the causal body so you actually wear three bodies not one and as if uh, three bodies are not enough we have made a, a shashtam kosh also with our dress uh, with all the things we used to cover the body as if this identification is not enough we are identified with a whole lot of things outside the annamai kosh also so what we are trying to enhance our sense of personality through all this but vedanta will clearly tell you that you have to crack this personality paradigm the panchakosha in order to know the self which means panchakosha vichara has to be followed try to understand why you are not this body why you are not the vital energy sheet why you are not the mind so i think you have already seen it in um, some of the vedanta lectures the panchakosha the bhruguvalli is about this cracking this panchakosha model which means finding your way to the self by analyzing these five sheets and seeing that you are not identified with them by default but by choice check this out and see for yourself interesting obviously there's 8 billion or so people in the world most of whom don't even know that there are all these sheaths and yet who are identified with them and if they're identified mm-hmm. by choice that kind of implies that they could if we tell them about this they could say okay i choose not to be identified but obviously it's not as simple as that <laughs> why i say by choice your body does not come and say i does it but you say i am the body right what does this mean this is vedanta vichar nothing in your body has self awareness you see all of your cells are conscious they are doing their own thing they are man- like a machine they are manufacturing what they have to but they are not self aware you are aware of the body the body is not aware of you what does this mean this means you are wearing the body you are not the body self awareness belongs to the subject the, the supreme subject and not to the body 
I always give this example to my students. Suppose you have a stomach ache, an external instrument like a CT scan or ultrasound has to tell you what is the problem where you can't pinpoint the problem. That unaware are you of the body. You are not even conscious of the body until you are made conscious of it. And yet you say, I am the body. This is the mistake. The body is yours, definitely. But you are not the body because the body never claims an I. Yet you say, I am the body. There is an I apart from the body. Please see this. Raman Mahashi would say, you see, your existence is evident with or without body, with or without mind. You must feel the truth of this in your own experience. Same thing with our thoughts, with our mind. I am aware of my thoughts. That's why I have memories. But my thoughts are not aware of me. They don't have self-awareness. So the subject is always, these are objective experiences for me. The subject is always apart from them. So this is Panchakosha Vichara. Like this, you can go till the Anandamaya Kosh. Everything is an object of your perception. Everything is changing in your perception. Everything is unidentified with you. And yet you claim an I over it. Although it is yours, it is not you. You say, I am this. This is the problem. Now, the truth of this has, can only be experienced through Vedant. Only when it comes to self, pure being, you need not claim anything there. You are just that all the time. That is not yours. It is you. Awareness is not yours. Please see in this ultimate analysis, you cannot say my awareness. Pure awareness is you. The rest is yours. So this is Panchakosha Vichara. It will tell you, it will show you clearly that you are wearing these five sheets. You are not the five sheets. You are the self which dons these and manifests as a human personality. But if you identify only with this, you lead a very limited life of body consciousness, mind consciousness. That's all. That's why I told you, you are identified by choice and not by default. I've heard you say that when we die, really all that happens is the Anamaya Kosha dies. The body, the growth, yes. the physical meat puppet dies. The, the rest of you is carried on. So that's what reincarnates or goes to some loka or whatever happens. Right. And that's what people experience. That's why I occasionally will interview someone who's had a near-death experience, for instance, who or an out-of-body experience, because it, it's a practical demonstration of that fact. That's right. So many stories. I mean, I interviewed one lady who, when she was a little child, she fell into a tank of water and was drowning, and she left her body, and she saw the nanny in the in the house watching soap operas, and so she thought, I'm not going to get any help there. And so she went down the street and found her mother waiting My at the God. bus stop mm. to go to work. And in her subtle body, she said, hi, mom. And her mom dropped whatever she was doing, ran back straight to the tank, not into the house, but straight to the tank, oh. pulled her out and resuscitated her. Um, Amazing. So that kind of thing, you know, those who think that we're only the body and that consciousness or that there's nothing subtler or more independent those kinds of things demonstrate that there are yeah exactly before we run out of time something that bugs me which i've uh, heard you say i've heard ramana say it many people say it and i put it in my notes that you've seen and that is the thing about experiencing the absence of objects during sleep when i wake up in the morning 
I feel I slept well, not because I remember having slept necessarily, but because, oh, I feel so relaxed and rested. I must have slept well. I make that inference. Although the, sometimes I actually do this thing where I wake up and I think to myself, okay, stop being so lazy. Get out of bed. You're awake. <laughs> and I, I have this feeling like I've been lying there awake for a long time. But then I realize, wait a minute, I just woke up. I've been sleeping. And there was this awareness somehow that I was awake, even though I was asleep. And this can get much more clear. I have friends, some of whom I've interviewed on this show, who joke that they haven't slept in decades. And of course, their bodies have, but the inner awareness has never been clouded for a long, long time. But the question, distill this down into a question, do we really remember the fact that we feel we've slept well? Is that really a a proof that there was some awareness during sleep, or can't that just be deduced from how refreshed we feel when we wake up? There's been a lot of discussion on this point because this was the a main point of um, opposition between the Nayaikas and the Advaita Vedantins. How do you say that you experienced absence in, of objective encounters in deep sleep when, according to the Nayaikas, it was an inference you're drawing after you get up? According to the Advaitins, they say, no, it was an experience of absence because the mind was shut down and you record experience only through the mind. When the mind gets shut down, you don't have a normal experience. But you, since you say you had a restful, peaceful, happy state of sleep, who recorded that experience? Who felt it? Maybe if nobody you were not there, Maybe you're just feeling it when you woke up because you feel so good. No, but then you would have said something like this, you know, you would have said that, well, I slept and I got up. You wouldn't have said I had a restful, peaceful sleep, which substantially rejuvenated my energies and renewed my mind. You wouldn't say all this. You were there to detect the absence of objects. You were there to feel a deep restfulness. That's why it was an experience of absence. This is the kind of conclusion they draw. The only way to study the way Mandukya Upanishad is putting it is to develop pockets of awareness in deep sleep. As uh, you say, some of your friends have been doing that. A yogic state of mind will help you see the state of Sushupti also objectively. And Sushupti it is a meaning sleep. That, yes, deep sleep. So it is important, that is why I say to understand Vedant while being established in yoga. If you don't have this yogic awareness within you, you will not understand, you will not feel or be able to objectively study Sushupti. If Mandukya Upanishad draws a statement like this, what does it matter to you unless you have felt the truth yourself? That is why I say pockets of awareness, deep level awareness, once you generate them in the meditative state, you know, the effect of meditation lasts beyond meditation hours. Your awareness will remain uncontaminated by all the experiences of your life. And you will develop pockets of awareness even in deep sleep. So then you will understand that it, you have experienced absence. Not even not pockets. Absence of I mean, some of these people I'm referring to, it's been a continuum. In fact, some spiritual teachers hold that as a litmus test for real yes. awakening you know that yes. if you're losing your awareness during deep sleep then you are not there yet 
from the jnani standpoint there are only two states no such four states of experience which we usually usually say jagrat swapna sushupti and turiya he reduces them to two he says there is one state of complete awakening and one state of dream and all your jagrat swapna and sushupti are different durations of the dream state mm-hmm. from the jnani standpoint from raman maharshi standpoint for instance yeah i think shankara called ignorance the long dream yeah yeah in, in even in talks with raman maharshi or nisargadatta maharaj you will find this they consider all jagrat swapna and sushupti that is waking dream and deep sleep it's only dream of different durations <laughs> and only the state of realization is the really awakened state or you can say the really jagrat state and so there are only two states according to them because those who have not tasted of realization will consider jagrat to be the awakened state isn't it the state of arousal so you must increase your awareness that's the only way in order to solve this problem there's no other way <laughs> good we're going a little long today cuz i consider this to be a wonderful privilege and opportunity to have this talk with you i think Irene's preparing a few more questions to come over but i have another one for you which i've wondered about for years i heard that sri ramakrishna pursued the paths of christianity islam and hinduism and in each case arrived at the goal of each path but I, that always puzzled me because he was already at the goal of all those paths so how did he go through the path again if he was already at the goal his life was a demonstration of certain uh, very important ideas which are required for evolving humanity it was a demonstration obviously he was in an awakened state of consciousness so it was it must have been easy for him to awaken to the truth of all religions but he came to show that every path is valid every religion is valid everything is a very good means to the ultimate state of god realization and nothing can be discounted his famous statement jato mat tato pat actually mat means not even faith it means opinions so as many opinions that many paths he says isn't this fantastic in today's world <laughs> you know even to know this that as many faiths that many paths and vivekananda in a, in a very more practical way he put this by saying that every man has a religion in his own soul and when you actually take to spirituality or spiritual practice that path is uncovered for you the way you will realize the supreme truth and every such path is valid the sanction is in your own soul so then what are we quarreling about is something really i don't understand <laughs> i don't understand the fundamentalist philosophy you know Yeah, me neither. I try to take a god's eye view of things, and it's a big universe. In fact, on occasion I've been confronted by fundamentalists and I start talking astronomy with them, you know, and try to give them an idea of how many inhabited planets there must be in the universe and is Jesus right. on tour or what if he's the only savior. Here's a question that came in from Ravi Dadlani, must be Kanta Dadlani's husband. He's in the UAE. In a chapter of the Panchadasi, I think chapter 13 or 14 the emphasis is on how we can use everyday pleasure and or happiness as a portal to atman is this a legitimate method everyday experiences of pain and pleasure pleasure or happiness yeah everyday pleasure yeah. i suppose we could take eating a good meal or yeah, eating you know, a watching good meal, a good tv example. show can those be portals to atman they cannot be portals to self knowledge because they will keep your mind deeply engaged in the experience and will not allow it to transcend itself but they 
will offer you clues like where is this happiness coming from is it coming from that tv show or this meal or is it coming from a deeper source they can lead you to this enquiry but don't think they are portals to transcending mind because your mind at that instant it will be carried away by that particular event that is why you are engaging in it so the very definition of yoga why does it say chitta vritti nirodh why on earth should it say that why would you want to put down thought which is you know the culmination of human evolution your thought process why is it asking you to do that so that you will get away from this conditioned mind so that you will enter into awareness and from there you view your thought process or you think anything you want but as long as you're mingled with the thought process you will not be able to realize the self i can think of one example a type of example for instance one time i watched the um, brother son sister moon which is a film about the life of saint francis and i just felt so expanded and elated from mm. sitting there i had to sit for a while afterwards i couldn't get up or another time i put on headphones and i listened to beethoven's fifth symphony and i remember i just went into such a deep state it was like as good as any meditation so, <laughs> so i think sometimes really no, that's profound because things we're seeing can... the life the life of francis or the mm-hmm. life of saint clair or a, a piece of music like this this can definitely put you into a very elevated level of consciousness because it has risen from there and not everything will give you the capacity to do this yeah i remember hearing stories of sri ramakrishna that he would hear some noise in the distance or something and it would put him into samadhi see in his case because his consciousness was completely awakened the least suggestions would put him into the state of god consciousness in our case we really need to cultivate the mind first isn't it hmm? it's pretty obvious shri ramkrishna would ask for some sweet meat in order to come out of his state of samadhi into the normal state of consciousness because his mind was used to that super conscious state he would struggle to bring it down our struggle is just the opposite we are struggling to lift it up <laughs> so then to a certain extent you must put down that which attracts the senses that which engages the mind in order to transcend this level whether you call it renunciation you call it yoga whatever you call it you must fundamentally understand the existential need to have a completely uncluttered mind then sadhana becomes natural to you otherwise you know it's an enforce something oh why should i make my mind thought free okay don't make it thought free if you don't want to nobody is insisting on that but if you want to be a yogi then you will understand the existential need of your mind to do this then you'll obviously do it you can stall the mind you can't completely declutter it for a long time so that's why the practice is important stick to the practice and i should add that through regular practice the mind attains a condition of uncluttered-ness all the yes. time when i was a kid it was like i had five radio stations playing in my head all the time just <laughs> so much <Yes>. chaos <laughs> but you know now the the mind seems to be i mean still some degree of agitation but a lot of times just very settled and things come up if they need to but otherwise there's not a lot of extraneous clutter that's right that's <clears throat> how it should be isn't it so that we're peaceful by our own nature yeah and it's a very efficient way of functioning you know because you burn a lot of energy with that's all this right. 
agitation going on. But if everything is settled, the physiology is settled too. Even if you're physically active, there's a state of repose within that conserves energy. And so you have more energy to channel into useful things. That's right. All of our questions today are from Indians. Here's one from Kavita Vishwanathan in Dallas, Texas. Could you speak about the state where the yogic practitioner has not found firm spiritual ground? Alabda Bhumi Kadvam. See, not finding firm ground only means you have not completely separated from the thought process in yogic balance. Because I told you the foundation of your thought is awareness. If you step completely into that awareness, you can see mind objectively. But for this to happen, somewhere that separation should have taken place, isn't it? Now, why doesn't it take place is only because of our interest in the thought process. It keeps us subtly engaged with the thought process, connected to it. So that is Vairagya. Vairagya is not running away from things and family and uh, duties and responsibilities. It is actually keeping your thought process at bay. That is Vairagya. When you know how to handle thought, how much to invest in the thought, then you are a true Vairagin, a, a true renunciate, I would say. Because you actually cannot, what will you renounce? Your body depends on this existence for its own sustenance. Your mind depends on the subtle world for its sustenance. Where are you renouncing? All you can do is, by renunciation, what is meant is your ability to objectively see the body-mind complex. This ability lies deep within you. Yoga is the means to bring it out. And if you don't attain to it, uh, well, don't worry too much about the end result. I will tell you this. Because, you know, if you follow the method properly, suppose you don't get the end result in the, say, the next uh, one decade, you will get it after that. If you don't get it in this lifetime, you will get it in the next lifetime. But you have generated, created the building blocks required for the yogic life. So no effort is wasted. This is there in the Bhagavad Gita in a big way. So your effort is carried on over lifetimes. And it's not easy to do this, especially in today's modern lifestyle, uh, where we are taught to be in the uh, excitability mode uh, right from childhood. It is difficult to stop the thought process just like that. But try it. And you will see it has innumerable blessings to your life. That verse in the Gita, no effort is lost and also no obstacle exists, which means that really there is no obstacle which cannot be overcome. Yes, yes. Initially, I think what we should try at is to generate the yogic sanskars required for a continued intense yogic life. This is very important. See, the difference between a yoga brashta and a jivan mukta lies in this. If you have enough sanskars for the higher life, you will magically reach there. Otherwise, you will become a yoga brashta, which means you couldn't find the truth in this life and you just strove for it and then you continue again in the next life. Which is also in the Gita. Yeah, this is also in the Gita. Yeah, basically you pick up where you left off. Exactly. So you employ this karma yoga, sattvic life, good habits, good uh, tendencies to generate good sanskars, good exposures, most of all, because today we have wide range of exposures uh, falling on us all the time. So regulate a little of all this and you will see you will have this natural tendency towards a very intense inner life naturally. 
And when you say just stop the mind, as you said a few minutes ago, that could be discouraging to people. But obviously, (laughs) one should seek out good instruction. And as Jesus said, seek and ye shall find. If you have the sincere desire for what we're talking about here, opportunities will present themselves. And um, yes, but you know, you're not just telling people to listen to this interview, sit down and stop their mind. No, what I mean to say when I say that is your awareness should come to the forefront and your engagement with thought process, which many times is erratic, should go at least to the background, if not vanish. This state is so magical and so powerful when you are intensely aware without a reflecting thought process. This state is so powerful that you can achieve anything through this state. That's why I keep saying stop mind. What I mean to say is I don't mean to well stop your life. I don't mean to say that at all. I mean to say become more aware than identified. And it's not an overnight process, but just keep moving in that direction. Yes, that's yeah. right. Question from Sriram Ganesh in India. Is there some guidance on finding our guru? Well, guru is very important and you must find your guru. Because uh, all these new age people who keep saying, uh, well, uh, no need of guru, they don't know what they are saying. Because one powerful mind, all the struggle you can put up for decades or lifetimes, maybe you can cut you through all that struggle. Just one powerful mind. And you must go into the physical presence of your guru. That's why you must find one. And don't listen to all this that uh, guru is not required and all that. In fact, the guru shakti, uh, when you, uh, if you intensely want uh, the guru shakti to come into your life, you, you will find your guru. Because his mind also is just waiting to give. Unfortunately, there have been some so-called gurus who have misbehaved and have given gurus a bad name and disillusioned people, but there's still some good ones out there. Yeah. That's why I brought up this whole ethics thing in the beginning. It really bothers me when people abuse their, the trust. The fundamental thing to understand in spiritual, about spiritual life is without purity, you can't go anywhere. Your mind will not uh, remain in that clarified state where awareness will blossom if there is no inner outer purity. That's why we always insist on this. Even if you are a householder, a regulated life where you have not compromised on your essential vitality, you don't waste your vital energies on unnecessary thought and emotion. This is mandatory. A clean life is the best way to progress spiritually. It's pretty obvious to the practitioner what I'm saying. Question from Tammy Budesa in Mount Shasta, California. I'm having surgery soon, and I'm wondering where does the witness consciousness go during general anesthesia? Since I am not (laughs) conscious during anesthesia, does it not have anything to witness? Which is a very good thing, she says. She doesn't want to (laughs) witness surgery. No, the thing is, for most people, witness consciousness and mind there has been no conscious separation of these two. That's why questions like these arise. Let me put a counter question to you. Suppose you know the visible universe only through the Hubble Space Telescope. Suppose there was no Hubble Space Telescope up there. Would you see the visible universe? You wouldn't be able to. Because the instrument for seeing that was the Space Telescope up there. So also your mind is giving you your experience of life. When the mind is shut down, you may not experience life, but are you absent? 
is the experiencer absent even the mind shuts down you may not see experiences like in your state of coma actually your what the medication in during surgeries does is it disconnects your brain and neuronal activity because it's an experience of pain it disconnects you from that but i'm telling you who's the experiencer of this connection you are always there whether the hubble space telescope is revealing the universe or not revealing it only thing is you use the mind always to have a concept of yourself now that mind is absent so you don't have a concept of yourself so you imagine you are you are absent <laughs> please try to see what i'm trying to say <laughs> on this point i had a friend um, who has since passed away but who was one of these people that was maintaining pure awareness during sleep all the time and that was kind of normal but she said that when she had surgery she lost it and that surprised her because she was used to having it be there all the time during deep sleep but not during general anesthesia see general anesthesia puts you into very deep sleep so she can lose awareness at that time but what i'm saying is here again we are when when i'm using the word awareness here it doesn't mean the atman it means the reflected awareness in your mind since the whole mind is getting shut down that awareness also is lost but are you lost is what i'm asking well also we know that even if you die you're not lost know that to be indeed indestructible by which all this is pervaded yoga works at bringing your unconscious and subconscious to the conscious level yoga essentially practiced will do that the intensity of your mental awareness will be very great through the practice of yoga so it creates pockets of awareness even in states of deep sleep in states of coma all this it can do that and to the extent a yogi achieves this awareness to the extent he becomes more and more deeply conscious of things and he realizes that he is never absent the instrument through which he is perceiving can be put down which is what all this medication or coma or uh, deep sleep and all this this is what happens in those times but that is not loss of consciousness essentially i have seen this in um, some elderly people who have alzheimers they may appear like they are in a completely vegetative state but you don't know subjectively they are experiencing something they are not able to articulate it or manifest it in any way but the subject is very much there there's and an the, interesting thing called end stage lucidity i believe it's called where someone who has been in a coma for a long time perhaps with alzheimers all of a sudden they sit up in bed even if the brain is quite deteriorated have a quite coherent conversation with the exactly. people in the room and then lie back and die look at that that's what i'm saying interesting okay here's one question probably our final question this is from mohan rao he asked one earlier can you please comment on the concept of worship or praising god if i am atman who is part of brahman then why should i worship or praise myself even having gratitude to myself may not make sense from this perspective yes but as long as it's only a perspective and not a realization you must continue to praise god because until it becomes a realization that i am brahman and i remain in the state of pure consciousness always you must understand that when you worship god you are only worshiping the true self the higher self as long as you have not realized it you must continue to perform that worship one of our great maharaj used to say this great monks of the ramkrishna order he used to say this that people apply gyan to god and they apply bhakti to themselves which is wrong isn't it you must apply 
the philosophical inquiry to yourself and devotion to god so don't confuse these two as long as we have not realized our true self as being brahman you must continue to worship god whether it is the personal god or the vishishtadvaitik concept of god but your adoration for the higher reality should always be part of your mind and practice and don't uh, compromise on these things just because there is some idea of advait vedant in your head as long as it's an idea it's not true it becomes true only when it's a realized something in your your entire system has become like that it's a complete realization in itself so until it's only an idea it's a, it's a cloud in your mind it will be blown away by another cloud after some time so please continue to worship god and That's even after you can progress even after brahman is realized here's a quote from narahari who was a post shankara advaita master he said duality is delusive before enlightenment but yes. post enlightenment duality imagined for the sake of devotion is more beautiful than non duality yes yes that's so beautiful true <laughs> okay so let's wrap it up i mentioned earlier that there's a there's youtube channel with lots of your talks on it i'll i'll provide a link to that what other things are you doing that people around the world can plug into do you do any webinars or anything else or should they just listen to your talks on youtube we have a weekly live stream class on the upanishads just now i'm not doing it we had been discussing mundaka upanishad mundaka upanishad and we already had five sessions done I, actually all the upanishads that's how they are being discussed every sunday but now since i am in uh, the himalayas i don't want to uh, go into discussion i would rather want to meditate more so i have stopped the classes and they will restart in july so anybody can connect to the live stream how can they find out about that can you send me information that i can put yes. on your your page yes i'll do that okay, i'll, I'll send you a mail yeah the books i mentioned in the beginning i didn't find them on amazon are they there or how can people get those books yeah they are on amazon india actually they are not amazon global yet so you can get the books through uh, the samitis the sharda mahila samiti there which is run by meri thamras i don't know if you know oh. her send me a link to oh. that also and i'll i'll put yeah, it I'll on your that. on your backgap yeah, page if, so people can get those books would you like to end this with a nice little chant <laughs> like well um, which one would you like oh, purnamada purnamida sure that one Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnamevavashishyate Om Shanti 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 Thank you, Mataji. It's really been a joy spending time with you. especially since we dragged you out of meditation to do this <laughs> no no don't say that <laughs> let me end with a very beautiful uh, quote of uh, raman marshi because you like him so much please he says there is no mistaking consciousness when it is pure nice let's remember this all right thank you so much and thank you to everyone who's been listening or watching if you haven't been to the batgap website go there and explore the menus and you'll see some interesting things including a schedule of who we've got scheduled for the upcoming weeks. So, we'll be in touch and uh, let's do this again one of these days. <laughs> Maybe when I'm uh, 
uh, out of the Himalayas. When you're back in civilization, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank Th you. Take care.